What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 41, The Oasis, in which Egypt's new ruler, Senusaret II, initiates an innovative and novel series of projects in the region of the Fayum Oasis. This episode is brought to you by Jason, Cam, and Angel David, who donated to the podcast recently. Thank you kindly for your generosity, folks, and may your new year be a joyous one. The year is now 1892 BCE, and Nub Kaure Amenemhat II has just left the mortal coil after a long reign of some 35 years. In that time, Amenemhat II had overseen a remarkably prosperous period of Egyptian history, in which trade missions went up and down the region of northeast Africa and into Syria and Palestine. Building projects had proclaimed the stability and strength of the royal household, and temples up and down Egypt had benefited from the patronage of the king. Now, the throne passed to Nub Kaure's son, another Senusaret. Senusaret II had been co-regent with his father for three years, continuing the tradition laid down nearly a century prior by Amenemhat I. It was a tradition that prevented internal discord, and ensured the security of the kingdom passed smoothly from one ruler to the next. He was the son of the king by a now anonymous queen. He had a younger brother named Amenemhat Ankh, and married at least two royal women, who may have been his sisters or half-sisters. With these two wives, Neferet II and Kenemet Neferhedjet I, he produced at least five children, including his future successor, and a young princess named Sat Hathor Iyunet, whom we will meet later in this episode. There were certainly other wives and other children, but only Neferet and Kenemet Neferhedjet are documented with 100% certainty. The others are not yet confirmed, so I omit them here. Senusaret II was destined to rule for somewhere between 8 and 10 years. Historians disagree on the length of his reign, because the document known today as the Turin Canon, which is one of the Bibles of pre-New Kingdom regnal lengths, does not mention this king at all. An unnamed entry in the roster of kings lists a reign of some 19 years, and in the eyes of some chronologists, this refers to Senusaret II. But, and this is a really common problem, the material evidence itself does not go any higher than regnal year 8, 
So we are either missing 11 years of dated documents, more than half of the reign, or there is an error in our interpretation. In my view, material evidence is always the foundation point, so I've opted for the 9 to 10 year range, accepted by most Egyptologists today. Considering this relatively short length of time, the achievements of his court, his workforce, and his own sense of direction are quite remarkable. Taking the throne name Ka Keper Re, or the form of Re appears in glory, the new ruler immediately took stock of his kingdom and the options available for promoting his own legacy. His very first act was a curious one, the significance of which Egyptologists are still uncertain about. It concerns the royal names of the king, specifically the five different names by which each ruler was known to his people. A king of ancient Egypt was, as I've mentioned, known by multiple names. In this podcast, I only use two of them, the throne name and the personal name. That's all you need to distinguish them, but it isn't quite the full breadth of names that I could use if I wanted to confuse you. Anyway, these five names were the personal name, e.g. Senusaret, the throne name, Ka Kepere, the golden Horus name, the two ladies name, and the Horus name. Every single ruler prior to Senusaret II had a two ladies name and a Horus name that were identical, but Senusaret decided to change this and have two distinct names for each title. For the two ladies name, he was known as Sechai Ma'at, or the one who causes Ma'at. For the Horus name, he was known as Seshemu Tawi, or the one who plans out the two lands. These two names suggest that this king had an agenda to organize the two lands, and to, in his view, establish the proper order of things as they should be. As we will see, one could make a plausible argument that he succeeded to a reasonably strong degree. This change between the two ladies' name and the Horus name was the final codification of the royal titulary, and became standard practice for the rest of Egyptian history. From now on, kings would be known by five distinct names, each conveying a different aspect of their ideals and what they hoped to achieve. Just for the record, I will continue to refer to kings by their throne name and personal name alone. If you wish to know each king's full list of titles, you may visit the excellent website of the University of St. Louis, or SLU. Simply google the name of the king you want to learn about, followed by the acronym SLU, and you will find many details, including their titles, family, and the major features of their government and reign. Now, with his accession and coronation out of the way, Ka Kepere Senusaret II turned his attention to the organization of his kingdom. As I mentioned, his Horus name, Seshemu Tawi, implies that this king came to the throne with a specific agenda for governance and organization. In practice, he devoted much of his effort to a single area of the kingdom. That region was the lake country known today as the Fayum Oasis. The Fayum is a group of large lakes about 100 kilometers or 65 miles south of modern Cairo. In the Middle Kingdom, 
it would most likely have been called She Reshit, or the Southern Lake. Over time, She Reshit changed to Paimu, the waters, which eventually morphed into the modern name of Fayum, giving the region a wonderful sense of continuity. Settlement remains have been found in the Fayum from as early as 4800 BCE, making it one of the oldest agricultural settlements in all of Egypt. The remains of items like stone tools, grinding stones, pottery pieces, and ancient fire pits tell us of Neolithic or Stone Age nomads moving around the region on a seasonal basis. Once herding, farming, and settlement took hold, the region became a noteworthy but rural part of the Nile Valley Kingdom. The crown hadn't put that much effort into the region during the Old Kingdom. During the 4th dynasty, the Fayum was a destination for quarrying and hunting expeditions, but nothing on the order of permanent settlement or colonisation. But by the time of the 12th dynasty, it seems to have become a more settled area. Still, though, somewhat isolated from the Nile Valley. Ka Kepere decided to change this, and incorporate the area more strongly into his kingdom. This would be achieved by three separate but important projects. The construction of irrigation canals to increase fertility. The establishment of a workers' town to increase the labour population. And, finally, the construction of nothing less than the King's Pyramid Tomb. The Pyramid of Kakepere would be located at a town called Lahun. This area is near to the Fayum Lakes, between the oasis and the Nile Valley itself. It is both accessible and secure enough to provide security for the royal burial. For like his father before him, the king was anxious to ensure the preservation of his sacred tomb. And what a tomb it would be, boasting at least two innovations and a symbolic aspect that heralded vital developments in the theological sphere. Let's discuss the innovations first. Firstly, there is the material out of which the pyramid is built. Unlike the other tombs of the 12th dynasty, which were a combination of limestone, loose stone filling, and packing, the pyramid of Kakepere Senusaret II has a core built almost exclusively of mud brick. Behind the outer casing of limestone, and reinforced by a cross-section of stone walls in the centre, the pyramid's core is built largely of small mud bricks. This was an interesting choice, but one that has not served the king well in the modern day. You see, once the casing stones were removed during the New Kingdom, the pyramid quickly eroded in the desert wind, and it is now nothing more than a heap of sand and mud. I still think it's pretty cool, but it doesn't make for a great photograph. So why did he choose this option, when the core was so vulnerable to exposure? Well, the king probably didn't expect the casing stones would be removed. Remember that during his own day, the pyramids of his ancestors were still largely intact, still encased in the original limestone. Sure, some parts had been demolished, like the causeways or valley temples, but these were then reused in later pyramids, like the tomb of Amenemhat I. So it was probably beyond Senusaret II's comprehension to imagine that someone would actually remove the casing stones 
and expose the vulnerable mud brick beneath. After all, by 1890 BCE, the tombs of Giza were 600 years old, and still standing strong. That's as old as the Cathedral of Florence, whose magnificent dome still stands as a monument to its designer, Brunelleschi. But Senusaret did not count on the capriciousness of later generations, who were quite willing to cannibalise the pyramid of a forgotten king for their own more urgent needs. The choice to build in mud brick might have been one of the reasons Kar Kepere chose the Fayum as the site for his tomb. The sheer abundance of water in the region made creating mud brick production factories a pretty simple task. As long as the number of workers was sufficient, production could proceed at a rapid pace, and construction would not take as long as a fully stone pyramid would. There was also the fact that the pyramid site was between the lake and the Nile, so transporting the actual casing stones would be much easier by water. The second innovation of this pyramid was a rather ingenious security measure. Like his father, Senusaret wanted to increase the security of the royal tomb, to ensure its preservation. This desire led to the introduction of the pyramid's most distinctive characteristic. The entrance to the tomb is completely removed from the pyramid itself. Pyramids before this time usually had a shaft leading to the burial chamber, located in the north face of the pyramid's masonry, or just in front of its base. The logic behind this was to assist the apotheosis of the king's soul. His bar would travel out of the pyramid to the north, where it could ascend to the celestial plane. But the architects of this era were less interested in this older theology. Instead, their focus now lay in preserving the sacred enclosure of the tomb itself. So, they moved the entrance somewhere it might not be noticed. About 30 metres to the south of the pyramid are a series of shaft tombs built for the king's family. Each shaft leads down into the bedrock to a burial chamber that is angled to the north towards the king's pyramid. But of the four shafts laid out here, one of them actually led in a long corridor underneath the pyramid itself. It finished in the southeastern quadrant of the pyramid, where it turned into an antechamber, a corridor, and a burial chamber. Thus, the king's tomb was hidden among less noticeable burials, in the hopes that any robbers would assume they had simply entered another, less significant tomb, and not try so hard to reach the burial chamber. What's even more amazing, however, is the fact that even this tomb may itself have been a decoy. You see, to the north of the pyramid is another series of tombs, these ones in the shape of mastabas. But these mastaba tombs have no entrances, no sepulchres, and no burials with which they are associated. Essentially, they're just gravestones. But just to the north of these is a long tomb cut into the bedrock. It travels southward in a long corridor, before finishing in several chambers, including a sarcophagus. The style of construction in this tomb, for which I sadly have not found a photo, is distinctly royal, and the first excavator, William Flinders Petrie, proposed that this 
was the king's actual burial. So in the region of Senusaret Pyramid Tomb, there are no less than two major royal burial chambers, each separated in some way from the pyramid itself. They are secluded, protected, and hidden, in the hopes that robbers would miss them. Sadly, it did not work. Both of these tombs were discovered and robbed long before the first archaeologists arrived. In fact, by the time Petrie arrived, the only artifact left in the king's tomb was a golden uraeus, or cobra, which may have adorned his crown. An unfortunate end for the king's burial, but an unsurprising one, all things considered. No matter how hard any ruler tried, most tombs of ancient Egyptian kings were robbed. There is a third aspect to this king's tomb that isn't necessarily unique or innovative, but is still quite noteworthy for our understanding of the 12th dynasty. In the shaft tomb that led under the pyramid, the corridor leading to the burial chamber abruptly splits in two. One leads directly to the chamber itself, while the other one encircles the tomb to create a kind of chamber within a chamber. Or, to put it more mystically, it creates something akin to an island. This island fills two functions, in that it replicates the original mound of earth which emerged from the waters of infinity way back in the dawn of creation, but it also replicates the island on which Isis resurrected her deceased husband Osiris. The cult of the deceased Osiris has been gaining prominence ever since the 5th dynasty, about 500 years prior to this moment. Now, the kings were enacting his cult on a regular basis. Kar-Kepare's predecessors had made contributions to the temples of Abydos, the ancient centre of the Osiris cult, and the iconography of this god was a regular fixture of royal burials. But to physically replicate part of the myth within the burial chamber of a pyramid was a fascinating choice, really highlighting the prominence of the cult in the royal mindset. So that's the strange story behind a pyramid which, to look at, is nothing special. But there is a lot that is special about Sinusaret II's tomb, and I hope that it will be re-excavated before too long. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Now, I mentioned that Kar Kepare enacted three major projects in the Fayum region, 
We've covered one. It's time for the other two. The Fayum lakes are oases, in the sense that they are not connected to the Nile River. The water which feeds them comes, underground, from the same source. But apart from the fertile land that links the river with the lakes, there is no literal above-ground connection. According to historical tradition, it was Sennusaret II who decided to change this state of affairs. As his pyramid was being surveyed and planned, engineers were also hard at work designing a series of irrigation canals connected to the ancient waterway known as the Bar Yusuf. The Bar Yusuf, or Waters of Joseph, runs parallel to the Nile, and eventually moves westward, close enough to the Fayum lakes that, with a lot of effort, it could feasibly be connected to the lakes themselves. In the 12th dynasty, this was allegedly achieved. Now, while the actual connection is attributed to the reign of Amenemhat III, the project seems to have begun here and now. Now, you may be asking, why do this? If the Fayum had been relatively undersettled, wouldn't there be land enough for everyone? Why bother expanding this part when you can simply settle closer to the lake? Well, the reason for that is due to the third Fayum project, the establishment of a workers' community at the town of Lahun. As the Pyramid of Kaakapare was being planned, it would have been abundantly clear that the local population was insufficient to provide a workforce for this kind of project. After all, several hundred thousand, even millions, of mud bricks were required. To accomplish this in the space of just a few years, a large workforce of dedicated brickmakers was required. On top of that, the government needed bakers, brewers, potters, priests, overseers, scribes, sandal makers, farmers, and fishermen. Added up, this would have been several thousand workers. But where would they be housed? This is where the community of Lahun found its genesis, being designated, planned, and created to the east of the pyramid itself. It is a small community by modern standards, but the space could accommodate several thousand people, making it one of the largest planned communities of the era. When you add in the fact that the whole thing was designed, surveyed, and built in a single effort, it is pretty awesome. A walled town, Lahun is one of the most significant sources for domestic life in the Middle Kingdom. It was well preserved when discovered by William Flinders Petrie in the late 19th century, who erroneously named it Kahun. Today, it is known by both names, Lahun and Kahun, but I will call it Lahun. The streets of Lahun are angled north to south, with some alleyways crossing east to west. The whole town is laid out in a rectangular grid system, with long narrow blocks of houses built together. These city blocks are then separated by small streets. In the western section of the town, the houses are small and cramped, probably only sufficient for a single small family. But in the eastern section, separated from the west by a wall, more spacious buildings dominate. These likely included the houses of the moderately important artisans, and the wealthy scribes and overseers commissioned to oversee the community. Lahun even had its own governor, or Khatia, 
like the more regional communities of Beni Hassan, Thebes, and Elephantine. With people like these wandering around, and the King's Pyramid being constructed by the workers living in this town, it is hard not to perceive Lahun as the epicentre of industry and activity during the years 1892 to 1885 BCE. Workers bustled around the banks of the irrigation canals, creating millions of mud bricks, while to the west, boats would traverse the Bar Yusuf, bringing limestone for the pyramid as it was erected. Labourers hurried to and fro in the region, while farmers worked to produce enough food for thousands of workers and their families. The community was a truly fascinating one. Artifacts uncovered here include a huge variety of personal items and workers' implements. Knives, hatchets, bowls, chisels, mallets, and brick moulds abound, reflecting the industrial focus of the community. But then there are the more personal items. Small statues of dancers, castanets made of ivory, children's dolls, board games like drafts, and pieces of fine pottery or furniture were all discovered and documented by Petrie's team. Lahoon is, without question, the most important settlement site of the 12th dynasty. The wealth of physical material is enormous, and documenting the full site is still an ongoing process. The town continued to function well into the reigns following Karkepere, so we will hear much more about them in future episodes. Karkepere's reign came to an end nine years after he had become co-regent with his father. In that time, the pyramid at Lahoon was completed, along with its subsidiary monuments and the secretly hidden tomb of the king. The daughters of the king were buried near to their father, including one named Sat Hathor Iyunet, whose tomb was discovered relatively undisturbed near the king's pyramid. Within, there was an abundance of jewellery and golden ornaments, to testify to this princess's wealth and her prestige in the royal household. But with the burial of the king, Karkepere passed into relative obscurity. Having ruled only a short time, and in the most accomplished dynasty to emerge since the fifth, this king's status could not be anything but minimal. He left behind him a son, Sinuseret III, whose 20-year reign would far eclipse that of Karkepere. A period of literary achievement, unlike any that had come before, the reign of Sinuseret III will be the high-water mark of the 12th dynasty. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by you, the listeners. If you are enjoying the show, consider leaving a review on your podcasting app of choice. If you would like to support the show directly and help me pay for research materials and food, consider signing up to my Patreon. Patreon subscribers get access to special perks like early episode releases, supplementary notes and photo materials, 
early or exclusive access to YouTube videos, and an ad-free experience. For as little as $5 US per month, you can enjoy the special edition of the podcast. If you are interested, follow the link in the episode description, or go to patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com forward slash Egypt podcast. Thank you for listening. May the great gods bless your week. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.